Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we'll be talking about Yevgeny Prigozhin's short-lived armed rebellion in Russia and what it means for the future of Vladimir Putin's regime. So on today's podcast, we wanted to talk about what has happened and what might happen next in Russia and who better to speak to than Vladislav Zubok, professor of international history at the London School of Economics and the author of Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union. Vladislav Zubok, thanks for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you, Katie. So the build up to this crisis reminds me a little bit of the Hemingway quote about how you would go bankrupt gradually and then suddenly. It strikes me we've been watching this sort of long-running feud building between Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, and the Russian military leadership, specifically the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, and the head of the general staff, Valery Gerasimov. That has been building up, it seems now, for months. But then all of a sudden, on Friday, 23rd of June, you had Prigozhin declaring his march on, of justice on Moscow and then taking control of a military base in Rostov. So if I can ask you to take me back to your impressions of the lead into this, of how we got here, and when you realized that what we were watching was in fact something pretty serious. First of all, yeah, I, I wouldn't pretend I wasn't caught by surprise. Generally, I teach history, I like history, but every time history catches me by surprise, I don't know. And not only me, of course. But when we try to understand what happened, we have to at least speak about three elements of this story. First, sorry to be like a little bit professorial. First is the structure, the setting for it. Second is contingency or conjunction. What exactly? Why exactly now? Why exactly at this moment? And of course, the actor himself. 
Prigozhin and, and, and actors around him. So the setting was Vladimir Putin's strange mode of waging this war. He didn't declare it a war. He didn't mobilize Russians. There's, some people think that this is because the unsaid, unspoken assumption among the Russians is anything but war. We can forgive autocracy. We can, as long as the food on the table and there's no war, we can put up with this regime. <laughs> there's no war technically, but those events disrupted this. Second, second part of the setting is the fact that Putin, like many autocrats, of course, likes to manipulate many people to create this uncertainty. Stalin famously or infamously played with his Politburo members. They never knew who's a favorite now, who would be the favorite tomorrow. And that the same concern, by the way, is Stalin's marshals. For instance, they didn't know who would take Berlin in 1945, Zhukov or Konin. And fast forward to today's situation, the same was, as you described, Katie, was a long-term feud between Prigozhin and the top military leaders of the, actually, the regular army. And people followed that feud with fascination because Prigozhin clearly allowed himself much more than any Russian citizen, any Russian official could. I mean, that was a huge contrast between him blurting out all this, the truths about the war and everyone else who kept mum, including Shoigu and Gerasimov, who sitting and getting all this wind in their face. Okay, so that was the situation, and everybody thought this is a kind of a game, and this Putin knows about it, Putin tolerates it, and as long as it goes. Now, why did it explode? And of course, it's the simplest part of the story is that by July 1st, Putin said all formations, including most importantly Wagner, there are other formations, but they're minuscule, like battalions, but primarily Wagner, this private army, has to sign a contract with the Ministry of Defense and be on state budget. It was on state budget, but it was on a special secret state budget before, but now it will be like everyone else. And apparently that coincided with moves against Prigozhin personally. He is a wealthy man, the coup of Putin. So suddenly he heard that there would be raids on his property, that his business would be taken from him and so forth. So... Now we know, according to all the available information, that he simply freaked out. So he behaved like no one else before him. What happened before him? Putin would take a property, I don't know, from Mikhail Khodorkovsky, put him, puts him into prison. All the other oligarchs, they did nothing. And that continued until today. Putin can't humiliate anyone. Nobody, of course, reacts. Nobody responds because everybody knows the consequences. <laughs> but finally, you have this kind of freaky element, free element, like Prigozhin behaving strangely, freaking out. And then after a while, maybe he calculated that his chances of success of actually what he was supposed to achieve in Moscow with 10,000 people in Moscow. A, storm the Kremlin and be annihilated. B, throw out the rascals from the general staff or the Ministry of Defense and be eliminated eventually. What are the options? When he calculated them gradually, he maybe calmed down and decided to take the deal that was coming his way. So all three things uh, caught us by surprise because of the last element in the story, Prigozhin's character, Prigozhin's emotions. And I think that's the key in history. Some 10 other people in, uh, in Prigozhin's place would have just said, okay, Mr. Putin, okay, 
take my wealth, I surrender, basically. But he did not. And that, that's the story. This may be a failure of imagination on my part, but I, the Friday night, the 23rd of June, with Prigozhin declaring he was going to do this, denouncing the basis for the war, I went to bed that night fully expecting to wake up and see Prigozhin under arrest, yeah. or maybe worse. Mm-hmm. My understanding was that somebody who, he was careful not to directly challenge Putin by name, but by going after so specifically the basis for the war, by going after that, you know, that quote, evil military leadership, it did seem like a fairly direct challenge to Putin's system. And I assumed he would be dealt with. And I was very surprised to wake up the next morning and see him there. He was strolling around the base in, in Rostov, chatting to the deputy defense minister, looking quite relaxed. And his armored columns had reached Voronezh and they were still heading towards Moscow. I mean, what did you make of the official response to this, the fact that somebody put it to me, if you challenge Stalin and you lose, you lose everything. Right. Prigozhin demonstrated he could challenge Putin or at least elements of the system. And so far, you seem to be able to walk away. Let's begin with Stalin, because not because he's my favorite historical personality, but he sets these patterns of absolutely ruthless, absolutely effective murderer and terror, terrorized everyone. But even Stalin did not kill his victim right away. There was this kind of Stalin-esque pause, famous pause. I can give many examples. One, for instance, at the Yalta conference in 45 with Roosevelt and Churchill, there was this marshal of aviation who blurted out something totally untoward, and Stalin was offended by him. So the guy didn't disappear right away, but he eventually he disappeared. And that was Stalin's kind of signature. I think it's also Putin's signature in the sense that, listen, you know, how for how many months, if not years, Alexei Navalny challenged him openly and basically ridiculed him. We all, that was ages ago. It feels like ages ago, but relatively recently, he publicized all this stuff about Putin's palace in the South. And everybody said, oh my God, how can dare to do it, what would happen to him? He, he was near poisoned, as we know, allowed, nevertheless, allowed to go abroad and foolishly return. And only then he was arrested and imprisoned because in a sense he cornered Putin. Putin had to do something. With Prigozhin, I don't think Putin was going to change this pattern of behavior. He just didn't expect to be caught flat-footed in such an unceremonious manner because he and Prigozhin, in a sense, are the opposites are the opposites. Putin is a calculator. He's a web man. He slowly but surely makes this web. And ultimately, when no one pays attention, he strikes someone down quietly. So Prigozhin is just the opposite. Look at him. He All these uh, tacky things with corpses around them, blurting out everything right now. He's a Twitter person. He's a kind of social person. I don't know where this background came from, his imprisonment, his criminal background. I don't know, but it's totally opposite. And he, in this way, he gave us this drama of how many? 24 hours, basically, when he became the world sensation. And Putin, who never goes on internet, doesn't know what social networks is, how they work. He operates in Stalinesque manner, basically, like in the previous century. He looked like totally dumb and ineffective, but it's wrong because he's effective. He just needs time. 
he needs time. And I'm sure he now met with the military. He's, he's, he's repairing his web as we speak, right? So he may be effective, just in his own way. And Putin mentioned the his reference point was the 1917 mutiny when Kornilov launched his own march then on, on St. Petersburg, or I guess then Petrograd, and Putin made the link between this mutiny while the country was at war, and then the October Revolution and the Civil War that followed. What is the right historical analogy to be using here? What are the episodes of Russian history that can help us to think about and understand what we've just witnessed? Katie, I was so surprised when so many people following Putin's cue suddenly began to speak about another 1917. I simply don't see any 1917 here. The Tsar is not overthrown. And if we continue to discuss it, I think it's very difficult to overthrow the Tsar. He's still there in the Kremlin, right? There are no radicals, socialists, idealists, and even determined enlightened bureaucrats uh, who are prepared to rescue the country and move, reshift it into the much more positive direction, unfortunately. And finally, let's talk about the military. Russia was at war, World War I in 1917, was losing this war, but with great allies. America joined the war in April. Some people say, eh, Russia not succumbed to the revolution and radicalism, Russia would have been at the Versailles conference as one of the winning powers, right? So Putin definitely used this theme in, in, in his historical analogy and so forth. But let's talk about Kornilov. I want to defend Kornilov. People, when I was a student in the Soviet communist days, they would talk, he's a white reactionary guy, he was a monarchist, I mean, not, nothing like that. He was a democratic general who wanted to clean the the capital from rascals and radicals and allow the Constitutional Assembly later on to take power and decide on the future of Russia. And later he proved he can die for his principles. He led another march against the Bolshevik mob in the South, actually not very far from where Prigozhin's camp was, and he died heroically, right? So Kornilov, for many Russians, not only white Russians, but just normal Russians, should be a hero, right? Prigozhin has no principles. Prigozhin is basically the way, particularly how he behaved by taking this deal and decamping to Belarus. I think he disappointed many people who are almost on the brink of proclaiming him a new Napoleon, a new whatever. And some people wrote on Twitter, we should all support Prigozhin because He's the enemy of our enemy. Let him topple Putin. And he's became the embodiment of so many aspirations and grievances. But he's none of that. He's none of that. He's just an unprincipled mobster, I think. And at best, he could a, a sort of communicator to some, some Russian millions who liked his story. Let's show them we'll win. We're tough. We're merciless. It is a certain certain public, and my feeling is that instead of 1917, we should go to the early 17th century, the time of troubles for Russia, some call it the Civil War, and you find plenty of characters during that time. It's, by the way, 1604 until the election of the new Tsar, the Romanov Tsar, 1613. A decade of total trouble, total economic chaos. And you find characters like Prigozhin there. 
plenty. I wouldn't burden my uh, listeners and viewers today with all those names they would not recognize. But reading this story, truly astounding. You find those pretenders, you find those ruffians who want to suddenly to march to Moscow and topple the uh, existing weak czar uh, in a hope to elect a people's czar and become the manipulator of the czar. So you find everything there. And uh, some great Russian historians actually said about this period, the early 17th century, it never fully left Russian political culture. It's still there. And even the Russian Revolution was compared to the time of troubles. Some historians wrote about 1917 through this lenses, not as we imagine revolution, right? A social, economic, some political transformation, but simply the collapse of authority and all kinds of rascals and entrepreneurs and pretenders moving in into this vacuum and trying to divide power or seize power. After the break, I'll talk more with Vladislav Zubok. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. It's available for both iPhone and Android. Just search New Statesman on the app or Google Play Store. We'll be right back. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You said you didn't want to burden our listeners, but I would invite you to bur- burden us further. For people who are less familiar, and it, well, enlighten us, it would be the right word to use. For people who are less familiar with this period, what are the key characteristics and what did that look like for the power structure? What are the parallels that we can draw with the current moment? For those musical enough, I would urge you to listen to Boris Godunov, a famous opera in the 19th century with this fantastic plot of the art that was not accepted by Russian people as a true czar, Boris Godunov. Because Ivan the Terrible killed his son previously and the dynasty ended. The last of, of Ivan's sons, Fyodor, was feeble-minded, as the chroniclers wrote about him, and he left no progeny, no successes. So the dynasty ended. But then, it, on top of it, Russia was so weakened by Ivan the Terrible's follies, by constant wars, by the way, with Poland and the Baltics, by all these raids from Crimea, the Ottoman Empire, I mean, it's familiar geography, but different, of course, different situation, that economically, socially, and psychologically, people just were prepared in a sense for, the, for accepting anyone who could fix that problem. But then the issue of legitimacy kicked in a big way, in big way. You may find it really strange, you know, how in, in, in a monarchy, Russian type of monarchy, legitimacy may matter. It mattered hugely because in, in the eyes of the people, there could be the right czar and the fake czar. 
And of course, then that emerged, the pretender emerged, famously called false Dimitri, who was a monk or some guy who pretended to be a monk. And then the story, the fantastic story starts. When you begin only to read this narrative, you cannot stop. He found the backing of the Polish-Lithuanian magnates, wealthy people. They said, go, we'll give you money, we'll give you troops, march to Moscow and seize power from Tsar Boris. And then the hell broke loose. Boris died. This guy entered the Kremlin. Everything chimed. People meeting him as a true czar because he said, I'm the last last grandson of Ivan the Terrible. I'm the loyal czar. Of course, he was not. So very quickly, the cast changed. Next act, he's thrown out of the window, defenestrated. One of the Boyar clan seized power, Vasily Shulsky. People don't like him. He's not a true czar either. And that kind of mess continued for 10 years. And Russia practically ceased to exist as a sovereign state, lost territory to the Swedes in the north, to the Poles. And finally, the Polish troops ended up in the Kremlin. I, I don't know. The Poles remember it, I'm sure. In their history books, it's one of the proudest moments. They were sitting in the Kremlin in Moscow for a few months. So Russia was finished. Russia was finished, and nobody knows what happened, but the Russian people probably rallied around the idea of a true czar. And that proves something interesting. When Russia, let's say, loses a war, people, and when the czar is weak, and people say, that's it, that's over, Russia is over. But that, they forget about legitimacy, and they forget about... And the elites, by the way, the elites are quite accommodating, scheming, and corrupt. They're prepared to invite the Polish czar. They're prepared to make all kinds of deals at the expense of their own country. They're absolutely cynical and unprincipled. People come in defense of a true religion and mother Russia. <laughs> this is what at least nationalist historians later on wrote about this lesson of the time of trouble. So in the end, they elected Michael, little, little, still young, Misha, Michael Romanov as an ex And we had the Romanov dynasty until 1917, right? So the upshot is that it was a Russian way of repeating the English civil war when, you know, Thomas Hobbes wrote his Leviathan, as a result of a civil war of everyone against everyone, finally you needed Leviathan or some kind of a, a sort of a deal between the main elements of the society. So in 1913, the elites, the Russian people, and elected the czar, and this triangle was established. And this triangle lasted until 1917, I would say. So for me, it's much more relevant story for what we're watching today Alike in 1604, when the pretender, false Dimitri, appeared on the horizon, the elites and the people hate each other and mistrust each other. The first thought probably when Prigozhin was marching into Moscow among many officials was, hey, this guy comes and unleashes the mob against us. They will rob us. They will take over our estates. They will take over our luxury cars, Bentley, the Bentleys, the Maseratis. I don't know, the modern version of the luxury and they were prepared probably to make a deal with anyone at this brief, brief moment. 
So now, of course, they all over the place, the Russian Duma representatives say, we must look at who behaved, how at this moment, did they buy tickets to leave Moscow and what did they do? And that's really a reaction to their typical behavior. They did the same in 1604, 1605, betraying Tsar Boris, then betraying the pretender false Dmitri, then pretending his successor Shuisky. Anyway, but the people didn't have a word in this story because it, la- it, it lasted literally a few hours, right, Katie? So w- when we make any conclusions about what would be the outcome of all this, let's suppose Prigozhin goes all the way. He's in Napoleon, he marches, and you know what would happen to the Wagnerites in the streets of Moscow? I think people would just look at them with astonishment, alienation. They would not greet them as liberators. They would not support them as someone who came to topple Putin and install a new czar. They would just go by their business. And the Wagnerites in Rostov, they were lost. They went to local cafes and bought cafes and didn't know what to do next. The same would have probably happened in Moscow. Sorry, I spoke for too long. No, that was wonderful. It's fascinating. One brief final question. You wrote a terrific piece for the New Statesman in response to this, where you talked about how Prigozhin's mutiny had punctured a hole in the performative Russian reality. And through this gaping hole, we can see a looming catastrophe. Very unfair question to ask a historian, I know, but where do you see this heading now? But it's, it cut both ways, Katie. When I said, I really meant it. This thing was real. And for a moment, everyone saw a prospect of a civil war, like on the famous Dali painting, right? the nation killing each other. They saw a social upheaval. They saw possibility of Putin being toppled, whatever. They saw the possibility of hyperinflation when ruble would lose its value as a result and would be worth a pile of money. And that was just for a brief moment. But again, it cuts both ways. On, on one side, it's people say, wow, Putin can be toppled. He performed so weakly. He was briefly like that clown telling about 1917, but not doing anything, threatening only, and so on and so forth. Nobody did a thing. That's all true. And that is what we read most of the time in all Western and publications and comments. But there's a, the other side of the coin is that the actors of the story are Russian elites and passively even Russian people who have to make their choices to cheer, not to cheer, to smile, not to smile, even passively, right? So when they see this gaping hole through which catastrophe looms, they decide, oh, hell no. I want my children to go to kindergarten and school tomorrow. I want my pension and my ruble stay stable. Hey, you may think that Putin is old and absolutely dysfunctional, but and I would prefer him to stay rather than to have any, anybody like Prigozhin or just the pr- prospect of Prigozhin and somebody else fighting over uh, the seat in the Kremlin. Oh my God, I'm not sure how many millions read and reread the history of the time of troubles during those hours. Smuta is called in Russian, Smuta. Instinctively, because they have this kind of almost like genetic instinctive memory of their history. They reacted, I think, in this way. So if we have a second chance, and it's quite likely that the war continues and such chances may 
such moments of instability might happen again with shock and uncertainty. We have, we analysts have to take both sides of the coin. Yes, Putin may be punctured as, as a naked king, right? At the same time, he's not the only actor. He's viewed as the only factor that holds the country and the order together. And that gives him resilience, even beyond his own personal capacities. That gives him sort of a mandate. If he loses completely this mandate, then people would spit and say, okay, we expected him at least to do this and that, and he didn't even do this and that. But we still haven't reached this moment. Vladislav Zubak, thank you so much for joining me today. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Katie Stallard. The team will be back on Thursday. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts. 